If an agency buys software through a reseller on a GSA schedule contract, does the software vendor have a claim if the agency cancels the license? After all, it wasn't the prime contractor. That's the gist of a case just tossed by the Civilian Board of Contract Appeals. Smith Pactor McWhorter procurement attorney Joe Petrillo brings us the lessons learned so far in this case. Joe, tell us about this case. Sure. This is a case involving AVU technology software. You know, as you know, all software is going to have a license associated with it when it's sold, but some software is sold through a dealer or distributor or reseller of some kind. And if that's the case in the government space, does the software manufacturer have direct rights under that license with the federal government and can it enforce those rights? In this case, Bayview Technologies sold their software through a distributor, Kerasoft, under that distributor's federal supply schedule contract. That's a big multi-award ordering vehicle administered by the General Services Administration. The uh, GSA schedule contract included the AVU software license, and that license listed what the licensee could do with the software and had specific obligations in it that flowed directly to AVU technologies. In this case, the software was sold on a subscription basis, and the order provided for a base year of subscription and with four one-year options. The government, in this case, it was the Food and Drug Administration, decided not to exercise any of the options, and the order came to an end after the base year. For some reason, that's not stated the opinion, AVU Technologies felt that FDA had misused the software or continued to use it in some way that was inconsistent with the license. So they brought a claim for infringement of the license. That claim was brought directly to FDA and GSA as well. We don't know whether they continued to use it after they ostensibly, that is the FDA, ended the license agreement, or perhaps they used it for some period of time to wind down use of it and transfer the data over. It's hard to tell then, in other words. Right. This particular ruling doesn't go into the details of why AVU felt that there was an infringement. It just says that AVU submitted a claim on that basis. As I mentioned, the claim went to both FDA and GSA. It gets complicated in GSA schedule contracts. Some disputes are within the ambit of the ordering agency. Other disputes have to go directly to GSA as the agency that administers the contract vehicle, and it isn't always clear which. So in this instance, claims were denied, and AVU appealed directly to the Civilian Board of Contract Appeals. And initially, the government moved to dismiss, saying that AVU was only a subcontractor. And the board said, no, AVU is claiming rights under this license directly owed to it by the government. So it's not just a subcontractor in that sense. After that happened, government then tried again to get the contract dismissed. And in this case, it said, you don't have jurisdiction to the board because this is not a procurement contract. Life software license is not a procurement contract. And the board looked to the definition of procurement contract in the Contract Disputes Act and also in the FAR. And they found that it really wasn't a procurement contract as defined there. The license did not obligate AVU to provide services unless it had been incorporated into a separate contract, in this case, the Federal Supply Schedule contract of Carasoft. And the government didn't pay AVU directly, it was paying. Carasoft. 
So the board decided it was not a procurement contract and they did not have jurisdiction. Because they didn't have jurisdiction, they didn't go forward and decide whether, for instance, the um, license was binding on the government, seemed to indicate it looked like it was binding, didn't decide whether there was any kind of direct contractual relationship with a view, so-called privity of contract. None of that got decided because the board simply held it did not have the jurisdiction to hear the case. We're speaking with procurement attorney Joe Petrillo of Smith Pactor McWhorter. So really then the case got tossed not on the merits so much as just the jurisdictional question. So we don't know then. What are AVU's options? Can they go to, say, the Court of Federal Claims now? Well, AVU certainly can appeal this ruling to the Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit and see if it can get a different result. But the decision poses the broader question of what does a software manufacturer do when it's selling its software licenses through a reseller. The Armed Services Board of Contract Appeals apparently hasn't ruled on this issue, and it may go in a different direction for DOD contracts. Beyond that, even the civilian board noted that it had accepted this type of case and adjudicated it where the uh, software manufacturer submitted its claim through the prime contractor as a pass-through claim. That's another avenue that software manufacturers can use. But of course, if the prime contractor is out of operation, insolvent, there are other obstacles that might make that difficult to do or impossible to do. Sure. And Carasoft is hardly out of business or inoperative. It's a you know highly, highly successful reseller. But it seems like really it's not part of this dispute because even though it was a reseller, once you buy something, in this case Aview, you've bought it. You haven't bought Carasoft, you've bought Aview using Carasoft as a vehicle to deliver, but the contract doesn't sound to me like it's with Carasoft. Well, that's what Aview thought. And in this instance, they weren't successful in convincing the board that that was the case under the Contract Disputes Act. There are other possibilities as well. I mean, a lot of software is copyrighted. And if the breach of the license amounts to a copyright infringement, the copyright owner can sue the government directly for infringement under a separate statute. That suit goes to the Court of Federal Claims. And in fact, the Court of Federal Claims has broader contract jurisdiction than just Contract Disputes Act jurisdiction. So there may be some opportunities to go directly to the Court of Federal Claims. There are a lot of questions here, and not all of them have answers. So if you're a software manufacturer, I think this is an unsettling case because it does indicate that there's at least one route you might want to have to vindicate your rights, and it's closed to you. It reminds me almost of the Inslaw case. I think that ran for 20 years, litigation over that, back in the 70s and 80s, and I think into the 90s. I lost the thread about 20 years ago of Inslaw, but I doubt AVU is going to want to pursue it quite that long. Fortunately, Inslaw was a, uh, a sui generis case, and a rather unique one, but most disputes don't drag on for for nearly that long. Joseph Petrillo is a procurement attorney with Smith Pactor McWhorter. Thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from 
high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do 
set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, And that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, And it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on What does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the the, probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly gay Black women. Uh, You know, there are not a lot of us. Um, You know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job. And then Let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, 
always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast1 to learn more and start your free trial.